We're going to carry on with a Marks of Jesus series, and we're going to be looking today at the subject, The First Shall Be Last. And we're going to read from Mark chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 33. It's quite a short reading, verse 33 to 37. It says, They came to Capernaum, and when he, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, the them, the he is Jesus, the them is the disciples, the twelve. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve to him and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In other words, his father, God as well. Now this is pretty radical stuff, and we're going to dig into it over the next half hour or 35 minutes, and I I really want you to hear from God in this, every one of you, whether you're a new Christian, a not yet Christian, or you've been a Christian 50, 60 years, like some of us in the room have. And I, I want us to hear from God as we listen carefully. I'd like to set this up with two important verses to bear in mind throughout this morning. So I'm going to put these two up, they're not unfamiliar, but I want you to bear them in mind as I then go on through the morning. Here's the first one, it's a part of Hebrews 1 verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus Christ is God become man, God man. He is the exact representation of the being of God. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Just let that sink in. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So what we're looking at today, what we're exploring, what we've already read and we'll dig into over the next few minutes, is the heart attitude of God. Just let that sink. It's the heart attitude of God. It's like, well, God the Father, he's really into hierarchy. He's really into, you know, dictatorial power. No, this is Jesus teaching us the heart of God. Just let that sink in because that's what it is. It's not a, there's not a conflict between what Jesus is like and what God the Father is like. Amen? Here's the next verse, also from Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus shares with the Father, being of the same being, three persons, one being, a very important characteristic. It's called immutability, unchanging. He doesn't change. The Father doesn't change. Jesus has not changed his attitude, changed his character, changed his value system, or anything like that, since he's in heaven. He's changed his circumstances pretty dramatically, sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he is the same Jesus. Amen? So he's not like, when he was on earth, he really got it, he saw out what a mess it was. Now he's sort of forgotten that, 
like we do when we get off our holiday, you know, you think, oh, you know, the whole attitude's changed, everything's different. No, no, Jesus is the same, and he has the same value system as we're going to see in a few minutes he had on earth. Now, I want you to bear those two things in mind as we actually look for the rest of the morning at two radical sayings of Jesus, which are in the short passage we read. And that's what we're going to look at now, two radical sayings of Jesus. And the first one is Mark 9, verse 35. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Almost need to check it. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. Even as I read it to you, the word very, I thought, is that a typo? Does it say very? Honestly, that's what went through my head. And I just checked the Bible. Yes, yes, what he said. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, this is radical teaching about true greatness. What greatness is from God's perspective. And I think it's possibly one of the most striking examples of something that is true in lots of other ways, that the kingdom of God is exactly 180 degrees upside down from the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is an inversion or a correct lining of the values of this world. It is the opposite to how we all have been brought up to think, how we think, and how the people around us think. And it's deeply embedded in us, including me, that we think like the world about values. The kingdom of God is upside down to the world's values. And this particular one is quite a telling and big example of it. And it does therefore require an openness of spirit and a renewal of our minds by the Holy Spirit to make the shift, which is possible and does happen when we come into God's kingdom. But it is a challenge. And we'll see that by enjoying for a moment, yet again, a little bit of fun at the disciples' expense. Because the thing that provoked this radical teaching by Jesus was, yet again, the disciples' dullness and their serious example of human weakness. Jesus is going to teach them a big lesson about his kingdom, and it says he did it in the house, which is a fascinating phrase, in the house in Capernaum. Now, every commentator I read on this said this house would be Peter and Andrew's home. It is the same house that is mentioned in Mark 1, verse 29, where Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. It is also the house where the paralytic was let through the roof. The roof was broken open and the paralytic was let in. It was Jesus' base in Capernaum. He may have even literally stayed there and slept there sometimes. But he was certainly familiar with the house. It was the base for most of his ministry in the whole Capernaum area where he came back to repeatedly. There's a certain mercy in the setting because Jesus is going to expose the ungodly, self-centered values of the disciples. And he's going to do it in at least the privacy of this house. And he's going to do it in a very intimate and very direct way. Now, Jesus starts with the question, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, obviously, Jesus knew what the answer was, but I don't think you had to be the son of God to have had an idea what they're arguing about. Come on, use your imagination. We've got 12 
grown men arguing about who's the greatest. Have any of you ever seen 12 men arguing about which football team is the greatest, say in a pub? I don't think you have to be 100... You don't have to be very far near to them to know what they're talking about, do you? So Jesus really, probably apart from his own godlike insight, knew what they'd been talking about. Twelve of them had been arguing on the road, arguing, mind you, about which of them was the greatest. What Jesus wants to do with the question is trigger something. He really wants to put his finger on something and he wants them to face up to something. It says, but they kept quiet. <laughs> they kept quiet. Can you imagine it? This is 12 grown men and they kept quiet. I mean, what did they do? Stared into the middle distance. Peter maybe suddenly decided to see if the roof was good after, the, after it had been... <coughs> we had the roof put right after that bloke was lowered through it. What did they do? They, nobody spoke. They kept quiet. She said, what have you been arguing about on the road? They all kept quiet. I mean, you should imagine, they were really embarrassed. Nobody would speak first. Nobody would say what they were doing. Nobody would admit. They were ashamed, even then, of their foolish behaviour, arguing which of them would be the greatest. Now, to be honest, I really don't feel any apology for having to go at them. This is pretty crass. It is pretty. I mean, first of all, they have been in the presence of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, for two years. They've heard his magnificent teaching. They've heard what we call the Sermon on the Mount. They'd have seen him heal thousands. They would have seen him feed 5,000 and 4,000. We've already looked at that. They would have seen him show love to the lepers and heal them, deliver the demonized, uh, help the marginalized, show compassion, confront the proud, hypocritical Pharisees. They'd have heard him confront them. Most of what he taught had already been done. It's two years in. Still the storm. And finally, verse 31, you don't have to look far to what he's just been talking about. He said to them, the disciples, verse 31 in the same chapter, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. He has just told them he is going to be killed by sinful men, by wicked people, and three days later will rise from the dead which the verse after tells us they hadn't a clue what he was on about. You can read it for yourself. But nevertheless, he had told them that. How could you see and hear everything I've talked about in the last two years, been with this wonderful man and his teaching, and still spend, and he's just told you he's going to die and rise again, and still spend your time arguing about which of you is the greatest? Which of you should be top dog and should take precedence? And let's remember who's having this argument. I mean, these are not intellectual giants. These are not the movers and shakers of Israel in the first century. These guys mostly come from Galilee, which is a rural backwater. I won't draw any parallels in modern Britain. Use your own imagination. Fill the gap in yourself. It's a rural backwater. It's Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This is where these guys come from. Half of them are fishermen, nearly half. A good bunch of them are fishermen. Okay, upper working class, what would we call them? I don't know. Okay, run a fishing business. There's a tax collector in there. He was considered a shifty character. There's a zealot and there's a few others. Very ordinary men from a very ordinary place. How could they possibly have the audacity to think of any of them being particularly great? Any of them would be great. How could they think it worthwhile and reasonable to spend their time arguing which of them 
took precedence over the others. How? Well, because they were normal, failing, sinful human beings, just like you and just like me. That's how. And it immediately connects with us. It immediately connects with us. James 1, verse 23, 24, says the Bible is like a mirror. You see in the Bible yourself, the stupid thing is to go away and forget what you've seen. So don't be stupid this morning. But actually, the Bible is a mirror. What you're seeing is all too familiar, isn't it? Isn't it? You can nod this time. (laughs) But it is. It's very familiar. It's familiar to me. The Holy Spirit has recorded this honest account of their proud, stupid bickering and place-seeking and hierarchical thinking and trying to pull each other down or elevate one after another for the benefit of not just them, but us, for the benefit of the church for the last 2,000 years. The problem, what is the problem? Well, the problem is the disciples have hardly listened to anything Jesus said or taken any of it seriously, it would seem. They've hardly really engaged with it. They certainly haven't listened to what he's just said about him dying, going into the hands of sinful men, and then three days later being raised from the dead. They haven't listened, and here's the warning for all of us, because they are totally absorbed with their own preconceived ideas of what he means, who he is, and what it means for them. So Jesus is the Messiah. They've got that far. We've had some quite, they have flickers of quite clever stuff. And they've, heaven's show, you know, God's opened their eyes and they've seen who he is. But they think that means that Jesus will be like a new King David. They think that means that Jesus will be King of the Jews and make Israel great again. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They think Jesus will be King of the Jews and make Israel great again kick out the Romans and become another David on the throne. And in the light of that, they're pretty obsessed about what that will mean for each one of them. Because they're dreaming about what it will mean to have been the inner circle of this new David, to have been his close confidants, to have been there from the beginning. When all the people are rejoicing, we'll say three years ago we started, we saw this three years ago, you know, we were in on this. We're the inner circle, we're there. And so actually, when Jesus comes to power, which one of us will be deputy prime minister? Which one of us will be chancellor's checker? Will John and James be minister of war? Because they're funds of fun, thunder of thunder. They'll lead the campaign to destroy the Romans. This is the sort of argument these very ordinary men are having. And if you, don't think, if you think I'm making it, I'm obviously using my imagination, because they didn't have chancellor's exchequer. You might have known that. But they had the equivalent... I'm not merely using my imagination. You read some of the passages of the Bible because they just still didn't quite get this even now. And there'll be another occasion when James and John's mum comes up and suggests that her two sons should have prominent places in Jesus' cabinet when he's ruling on his throne. So they hear bits of what Jesus says, interpret it their way completely, and then get quite quickly obsessed with what it means for them. I would say, how like me and you. How easy it is to hear what we want to hear and ignore the difficult and inconvenient bits of what the Bible says and what's in there. And then, how quickly we think, what does this mean for me? 
which is where they were at. What does this mean for me? I think I should be this. Well, I think I should be this. After all, Peter, I am the one who got the bit, at the, you know, that he's the son of God. And you can almost hear it. You can almost make it up. And I don't think it's that far from what was going on. Now, the sober fact is, pride is a deep-rooted sin. And we all still battle with it at times. Pride. We all naturally think better of ourselves than we ought to think. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. All of us. We naturally think we probably deserve to be recognised more than we are or that what we think, we've got it just right and really if other people woke up, they'd see what we, what we have to offer or the equivalent. And we can think of it in all sorts of ways. It's a very old sin, pride. It roots right back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve thought they had not got everything that their merits deserved. And so they were open to Satan's temptation. It ruins us. Pride is soul-ruining because it prevents us from repenting. It stops us having ears to hear. It, it limits our ability to receive from God. It checks our brotherly love. It dulls our spiritual sensitivity. And it needs to be confronted, and Jesus is very good at doing that, and he's about to do it here, and he's doing it here. Jesus sat down and called the 12 to him. Now, when that happened, that's serious, right? This is serious stuff. He doesn't always sit down. This is very much rabbi. I'm going to teach you something here. This is a verily, verily situation. This is a truly, truly listen. And so he sits down and calls them to him. And that's when he begins to drop this bombshell of the values of the kingdom. Now, let's be careful, because even as I speak, you can mishear what's said. I think you can hear what's being said as we're all meant to be nobodies and nothing. We have no ambition. We have no ambition. We just, oh, just float along. I'm a doormat for Jesus. That's what it means. No, no, no. Listen, listen. He never criticizes them wanting to be great. He doesn't actually dismiss their ambition What he does is completely redefine what greatness is. That is precisely what he does. He doesn't say, you shouldn't even be thinking of who would be great. He's saying, you want to be great? I'll tell you how you become great. That's what he's saying. It's good. I'm glad you have ambition. I'm glad you want to be leading in my kingdom. I'm glad you want to be great in my kingdom. Now, let me tell you what the kingdom of God has to say about greatness. How it works in the kingdom of God. How God sees greatness. You've got to understand, says Jesus, that there is a very different value system operating now in my kingdom from where you've come from. In God's kingdom, the greatest serves everyone else. Now, our Christian heritage still leaves that sort of Do you know, Theresa May is our prime minister. She is our number one servant. That's what it means, literally, because Christianity has influenced the thinking in our country. But but that hasn't changed the system, so let's leave that aside. But just remind you, this is a deep, profound thing. If you are going to be great or lead in my kingdom, you have to serve everyone. 
You have to be prepared to serve everyone. It is a huge divergence from the world system. In the Greco-Roman world around them, serving or service was considered undignified and demeaning. Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That's what Plato said. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Now, our own world is not dissimilar at all because it's got the same spirit. The things that are lauded and promoted in the 21st century in our culture are our assertiveness, our independence, our freedom to be ourselves, our freedom not to obey anyone unless we choose to. So we self-choose any obedience we do, that we are free to follow what we want to do, our choices, our desires, and no one else can tell me what I should do. And that is pretty prevalent through every strata of our society, including us here, that we are soaked in that and think that is perfectly reasonable. I, me, mine. No one should tell me what to do. I always choose what I do. I am my master of my own fate. I am my own boss, and nobody else bosses me about. And the world's idea of greatness is to rule, to receive honour and attention, to have people running around after you. That is still the world's idea of greatness. Oh, yes, we pay lip service to some Christian values, but when we look at our culture, when we look at what makes people celebrities, when we, you know, we can easily knock, like, you know, government ministers or something, but actually they're quite modestly paid. When you look at the big superstar salaries and the way people behave in the celebrity world, in the world of television, in the world of film, in the world of football stars, the thing that means you've arrived is you don't do anything for yourself. Everybody does something for you. You've got enough money to pay for everybody to come and do your nails, do this, do your cleaning, drive you around, have your own chauffeur. You have arrived when everybody runs around you. Is that not right? And that is our culture deeply embedded. It's the celebrity culture we live with. We haven't changed one little bit. God's idea of greatness is the opposite. It's when you serve other people. And Jesus demonstrated it to the extreme. Here's a verse, Mark 10, next chapter. Mark 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I think one of the things that I found most profound uh, when I was thinking and praying about God some years ago was a book, I can't remember the book, doesn't matter, it wasn't about the book, and it said that God is a humble God, a humble serving God. You know, do you get that? You think, well, surely not, he's in charge, he is in charge of everything, he is sovereign over all, he has nothing to prove, and he is essentially a humble serving God. Everything he does is for us. You say, is it really? Yes. Yes. And he could snuff us out in a minute, and he hasn't. God is a humble, serving God. And Jesus demonstrated God. And he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God's love is agape love. It's the only real agape love there is. It's a love which is serving and giving and not self-serving. And it's quite a challenge. And I'm challenged preparing the talk. I'm challenged preaching it. If you're not, I am. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think this is the love that God demonstrates through Jesus Christ. It's radical. It's so radical, but it is actually wonderful. There's something wonderful about this and liberating. Let me explain to you. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not reserved for the gifted, the privileged, the strong, the powerful, those who have the right opportunities, which is a lot of what it is in the world. Very few people rise to greatness, I'm sorry, just because of their inherent good uh, abilities. It's often they're lucky or they're right place or something, or they've got the right person, they've got enough money, all sorts of things. And we can all get envious of the privilege of some people, the strong, the powerful, the gifted. They're the ones that become great. Actually, forget it. In God's kingdom, you can all be great because you can all be servants. Everybody. In fact, if you want to be really great, you can quite easily do it by being a total 100% servant of others. And God will look down on that and say, that's great. (laughs) Because in the kingdom of God, your greatness does not depend on your luck, in inverted commas, gifted, privilege, power, etc., And Jesus says to them, you want to be first, you want to be great. And he's not saying it with a nastiness. That is good. Now let me just help you to see how it works in my Father's kingdom. You've got to think, is there something I can do for other people? Is there something that I can do to make them happier or better or freer? Is there something I can do to promote their well-being? What service can I render to my fellow Christians and to my fellow human beings? Because it's as broad as that. But I think it does start within the kingdom of God. So I I want to excel. I want to be honoured. I want to be great. I want to be on God's honours list. Well done, good and faithful servant. So I've got to find out how to serve well. And I've I've got to look at opportunities and I've got to do it with a full good heart to my best ability. And I think people like this, if we get this, and some of us do get it, most of us have sporadic moments when we get it. I do, and then I lose it. It's a bit like poor reception on the radio. But when you can get it by the Holy Spirit's help, and when you get it, I tell you, this is revolutionary. You can serve in the most mundane, ordinary ways, and you will find breakthroughs in relationships with people. You can break barriers down through godly service. You can be quite different from the world around. You can shake the kingdoms of this world by displaying this sort of serving love. You really can. You can un- undo people. You can, you, can, you can take away all their... They, they take the wind out of their sails if you get it. And if you do it, let's move on to the second quote, because it's related, of course. Mark 9, verse 37. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, Jesus is going on to really push the boundaries for his disciples and for us of how we understand this and work it out. And he's graphically demonstrating it by talking about a child. And he's going to use this child as a demonstrator, demonstration that the way to greatness, hear me carefully, is by serving and caring for the weakest and lowest and those who cannot pay you back 
and don't even get what you've done, which is what a little child is an example of. Now, we need a little bit of background because this is all, I feel in the next 10 minutes, this is quite profound, honestly, all the way through. Children were marginalised in first century society. There was a legal position that children were in in the Greco-Roman world, and I can't tell you the exact Latin. I'm not a Latin scholar. I failed my, never got to my O-level. I failed the mock. I was ashamed of that. But there you go. That's off my chest now. You can pray for me. <laughs> but the phrase was like not yet proper people, not yet arrived. So under 12 years old, which suggests these children were probably the children Jesus is talking about and using in the story we're looking at are small. A child under 12 was not yet a proper person, which meant that, for example, girls under the age of 12 could be legally sold as slaves by their father. Because girls, if you, had, you know, you wanted boys and all the rest of it, you could legally sell your girl under 12 as a slave. It was also legally permissible to get rid of unwanted babies by just getting rid of them and exposing them to animals in the air or to anybody. And uh, that uh, sadly often happened for baby girls more than baby boys. You can find examples of that. You wouldn't get caught before, or before the court. And just before we sneer or dismiss first century Rome... Can I remind you of 21st century Britain's arguments for legal abortion? Can I remind you that we don't like to use the word child for the... Uh, uh, but talk about fetus? Yeah, one minute we will try and save... A, 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 if the parents want it saved, we'll try and save a very, very half-developed almost uh, child in the womb. Another time we call it a fetus. We are very careful to not give them the designation of human beings. We say that this little baby in that woman's womb is part of the woman's body and she has a right to do with it whatever she wants. And we, we, not necessarily we in this room, but we as a culture think that's fine. That's no different to the first century Rome. It's just the same thinking. They didn't have the medicine and the technology for abortion, but they did it the other way. You can choose because legally they're not yet adults, so you've got a certain freedom. That's horrible. And it's just as horrible today in our culture. I want you to know that. I think it's awful. However, we don't need to spend too long on that. It's not a subject this morning. But it does tell you that children were marginalised. They were pretty marginalised by Jewish culture. Jews were better because they had God's law and they had, the world, they had God's wisdom. So they weren't quite as cruel as some of the Romans and Greeks. But we get an idea from this passage in Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. We get an idea of the attitude of the disciples. Could you pop that one up, please? Mark 10, if it would get up there. Thank you. Listen to this. It's from the next chapter, obviously. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on him. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. Now, actually, this is a, if you can leave it up for a moment, this is a powerful and emotional interchange between Jesus' disciples. There are two strong words used in the original Greek. 
The word that's translated in verse 13, rebuked by the disciples, is a strong word. It's a word used for getting rid of demons. So the disciples were not being polite. They were saying, go away, clear off, take them away. That's the way they were speaking. The word used for Jesus indignant in verse 14 is a very strong word. It is the only time it's used for Jesus in the whole Gospels. And it means to give vent to your anger, to show your anger. Jesus said, what are you doing? How dare you? That's the impression. Both of them are emotional words. So the disciples are scornful and dismissive of the people bringing the small children. And Jesus vents his anger, is the literal Greek. Vents his anger. So he shows that he's angry and he's indignant says, how dare you behave like that? Now that is extremely revealing. I think there's something powerful. It's a slight side issue, but I found it moving. In Jesus' attitude to children, notice in 9.36, the bit we're reading, Jesus takes the child in his arms. Now this child is surrounded by 12 adult men. It's a pretty intimidating setting, even in the first century, let alone the first century. Jesus clearly brings reassurance to the child. It's a little child and takes it in his arms. And when you read 10 verse 16, again, he takes the children in his arms. He doesn't just go, bless you, my son, bless you, my son. It says he took the children in his arms. Now, this is not how rabbis normally behave. And clearly, the children all felt safe with him. Clearly, they didn't feel intimidated by him. Clearly, there was something of Jesus' presence that was trustworthy and reassuring to a small child. Isn't that beautiful? A small child surrounded by 12 grown men, fishermen, great gnarled hands, stinking of fish. And, and somehow, this little child is quite happy to walk to Jesus as long as Jesus is there and holding him in his arms or her arms. We don't know if it's him or her. And that is amazing. I think that is powerful. It tells you something about God's attitude and Jesus' attitude to children. But what's Jesus teaching? This is my last phase, really, what I want to say, but it's very important. What's Jesus teaching them? The way of greatness is to welcome and care for the weakest and least among you, like this child. So in particular, to care for children in my name is to do something powerful for me. So Jesus says, this is where you'll find me and my father. That's what he literally says. He says, if you welcome them, you welcome me, and you welcome the one who sent me. So I want to tell you that work with children, which is often hard and discouraging, and is often underrated, even in our own circles, Jesus says, that is the path to greatness. That's where the great things are. I would dare to say... That right now, this morning, in, in 21st century Britain, in Winchester, in Hope Church, in the NBC, on Jesus' perspective, the greatest people are out there. They're Tory and her team on Jesus' value system. Not me, them. And that the first, if he did a chart for this morning, the first are those who are looking after the children while we're in here. Now, that doesn't mean... He doesn't do values. He knows others. It's not only about serving children, but just to take that as a snapshot of what we're talking about. A snapshot. Jesus said, when you serve someone like this, that's when you're great. You want the path to greatness, here it is. We're going to honour them at the end of the morning. Tori does know that. We're going to ask them back in. I don't want you to, when we stop, we're not going to be praying for each other. We're going to have a worship 
short worship time. Parents will go and get their children. I want them to bring the parents back. I want all the children's workers back. I just want to thank them and honour them. Because they serve not only us, they serve God. I think Jesus is saying an associated thing a little more broadly, which I've hinted at already, is that the best way to understand this service is to think, how do you serve someone who can't really pay you back and probably doesn't really understand what you've done for them, which is a little child? We all know that. We're parents. I've been parents and grandchildren. They don't know how good you are, do they? Think, blow me, I ought to be being thanked all day long by this child. And all they do is want to do a dirty nappy or something. I've done three already. They have no idea of how much you're doing for them. Is that right? All the parents nod their heads only too willingly. Now, that's the sort of service Jesus is talking about. Not where you'd serve someone who can get it. Oh, yeah, thanks very much. Have one back. Oh, yes, you've done really nicely for me. I'll come. Thank you. You lent me that. I'll lend you this. Sorry, James, but you're there. Oh, thank you, James. Thank you. Lend me a fiver. I'll lend you a fiver. Oh, I serve you with my fiver. And you'll serve me with your fiver, of course, when I want it. No, but that isn't real service. That's nice. Don't not do it. Lend each other fivers, by all means. But, but or give each other's fivers. Come on, it's not a lot of money. But in the bottom line, is that is not what Jesus taught. He's saying, you actually go and serve those who don't get it, who, who, you, who can't serve you back, who won't. And the path to greatness is this. And that obviously applies wider than just children. Finally, if you look at chapter 10, which we did, we put up on the screen, and put it with what we're getting here, you get a pretty profound insight into how it works in the kingdom of God for us in our relationship with God. Children are a profound insight. Little children, largely, under 12, let's call it that, are a profound insight into how it works with us and our Heavenly Father. Small children are much more naturally trusting than adults. They do not need all the details first. They don't need complete intellectual understanding before they will trust. Sadly, that means they are vulnerable because they will respond to kindness. They will respond to a loving look. They respond to someone being kind or gentle to them or giving them something. They are quite easily trustworthy, uh, trusting people. The right sort, and it's normally good, although it can be exploited, but let's thank God it's normally good. In other words, they will respond to kindness. They respond to arms held out. They respond to a, a gentle, kind, caring approach. They believe us and trust us all wrapped up together that's what little children do and Jesus says that's what you need to do with your heavenly father that's how it works in the kingdom of God can I just say to you if you're not yet a fully a Christian this morning you need to learn from this you cannot wait to you have all your intellectual answers uh, questions answered before you commit yourself to Jesus you will never get there and you'll end up away from him for eternity. Please don't hesitate. You need to see that he has shown love to you. Here's one verse. It's my last verse. It's so well known, but I want to put it up. Verse John 3.16, put it up. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has opened his arms to you. He loves you 
and he has sent his son to die for you. You need a childlike response to that act of love. You don't need to say, oh, what's in it? What's God after? What's he doing? Is it God? Is it, oh, oh, did he really die? Stop it. You've got to get more like a child. And a child will respond to the love. Yes, take a moment to hesitate. That child that was in in that room must have for a moment been nervous when it saw all the 12 men sitting around this man in the centre. Perhaps it was a family, part of the family. That child may have known Jesus. But the fact is it was an intimidating room. And actually then that little child's eyes must have seen Jesus. Look at him and say, come here, come here. And somehow he goes to, he, she goes to the Jesus and the warmth and the grace and the love and the trustworthiness, the child allows itself to be gathered up in his arms. And then Jesus looks at the 12 men and says, you've got to get this and uses the child as an illustration for a powerful teaching. But that tells us something about how we respond to God. You've got to look in the eyes of Jesus. You've got to look straight at it and say, I get it. If there's a God and he's like this, it's wonderful. If he's that loving, if he sent his son to die for me, I want it. Then go for it like a child would go for it. Don't keep hesitating. Don't keep analysing, double guessing it and trying to work out every last bit. That is not how we get really clearly saved. That's not how we give ourselves to God. There has to be a childlike, not childish, childlike element to our faith. He has not left you in your misery. If you want to think about this, I'm not going to get a response from you. You can respond this morning, come and talk to one of us, but please do. But if you want to respond to what I've just said, can I encourage you to go home and read Luke 15? Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, it won't take you long, God himself gives you three pictures of his seeking and loving you of the woman with the lost coin, the the shepherd with the lost sheep, and then the prodigal son, or the father, is a picture of God and the prodigal son. Read it thoughtfully and see the heart of God for you. And then respond. Be the prodigal son. Be the sheep that the Lord's come to find. And thank him and receive his love. And then come and tell us about it. But that's how we get saved. That's how we get saved. One last aspect of this Remember I said to you that the children in the first century were unimportant. They were marginalised. They were despised and not valued as proper people. Now here's an important point. When we come to God, when we come to Jesus, we come like little children, not just in our manner, which I've just talked about, but in our understanding of ourselves. We come as nobodies. We come as people with no credit, no clout and no claim like the children. When, and that applies to everybody in this room, everybody in this country. <laughs> it applies from the queen downwards. When you come to the living God, you come with no more credit, clout or claim than a small child in first century Palestine. So there's something about you come dependent on grace, dependent on your gracious, loving Heavenly Father. Thank God it's there. Amazing grace is there. Love is there. That's what we're talking about. Jesus has come to show it. He came to bring it. But we have to see, we don't come with an awful, we don't bring a lot to the table. We don't bring a lot at all. Without claim, without clout, without credit, we come and receive his love. It's wonderful. It's the gospel. 
And that's how we get saved. And that's how any of us have been saved. And that's what we keep living by. Brothers and sisters, we keep realizing that's what we are. We're children of the King. It's wonderful. Now we know he's our Heavenly Father. There's so much more we can say. But we are always those who didn't bring anything but our affection and ourselves. All we could bring was us and our heart. That's all we can bring. Like a little child, their affection and themselves. That's all they can bring. They can't, and that's all you can bring. Isn't that great? In one way, it's wonderful. But it's very, very humbling as well, isn't it? So as we finish this morning, I want to pray briefly and thank God for being such a great God. <laughs> and then we're going to have Mark and his band could come up while I pray. And then we're going to get the, the, the children's workers in. Lord, I want to thank you for your love. I want to thank you, Father, for saving me. I want to thank you, Lord, that I didn't bring any, anything to the table. You brought it all. But, Lord, you've accepted me and you've made me your child. Lord, I, I rejoice in that. Lord, I'm sorry that so often I get so complicated about my own service to you. Help us all to, to walk a bit more lightly with it all, to be a little less like the poor old disciples and a bit more like where, where we should be. Lord, we thank you that you told us about the disciples. It gives us some hope. But Lord, we thank you that you had to change them and you're changing us by the work of your Holy Spirit. Keep changing us, Lord, from one degree of glory to another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.